For our scripture reading, we turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, let's read together the entire chapter of Ephesians chapter 5. Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication... And all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, Submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Thus far, we read God's holy and inspired word. God add his blessing to the reading of his word. We read Lord's Day 21, the Heidelberg Catechism being based upon this passage of scripture. We read Lord's Day 21. This morning in the sermon, we'll be covering the first two questions and answers, and next week, the Lord willing, we'll especially focus on question 56 concerning the forgiveness of sins. But this morning, let's read these three questions and answers. Lord's Day 21, what believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself, by his spirit and word out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty, readily and cheerfully, to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved congregation, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism is making its way through the Apostles' Creed and throughout all of these articles of the Apostles' Creed, we make the beautiful confession that I believe in God. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. But now as we come to our confession of the church here in the latter articles of the Apostles' Creed, 
we don't say that I believe in the church, but rather our confession is I believe an holy Catholic church. That's a, a subtle distinction, but yet a very important distinction because when we believe in something, then we trust in that something. We believe that this can bring me salvation and therefore we believe in the Father and in the Son and in the Spirit because we can place our trust only in God. We believe that He and He alone is the one who grants us full and free salvation. And now when we can come to our confession about the church, we certainly uh, believe many things about the church, but we don't place our trust in the church. We don't say that the institution of the church is what saves us. Now, we do say that when God is pleased to give us salvation, that it pleases him to put us in the church and that in the church we fellowship with Jehovah God, but we don't believe in the church. We believe in Jehovah God who grants us full and free salvation. Well, having said that, that doesn't minimize or disparage in the least our confession of the church. The church is beautiful. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And so precious is the church that Jesus expends all his energy and all that he does is for the sake of the gathering, defending, and preserving of the members of his body, which is the church. Jesus laid down his life for the church. And therefore, the church is important, very precious to our Lord and Savior. And we ought to know more and more about this church. We learn from this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 21, concerning the church. We learn from this Lord's Day what we ought to expect from the church. Do we expect that church is the place that we will go to be entertained? Is the church the place we expect that we will be coddled and that nobody will ever speak hard words of rebuke or admonishment or correction or point out to me my sins and my shortcomings? We say, no, not that. But we come to church with the proper expectation that this is where we commune with God as we hear his word. And at times that word of God stings because it exposes us in our sins and that hurts. But in the church, we come to hear that those sins are forgiven in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that further here in church, we enjoy communion of the saints with Christ and with one another. We believe in holy Catholic church. Well, let's examine this Lord's Day as it's based on the truth of Ephesians chapter 5, taking as our theme the church of Christ. Let's note in the first place 
her attributes, the attributes of the true church. Secondly, her beauty. And finally, her members. Who is it that makes up those members and what are they like? The church of Christ. The Apostles' Creed tells us what the attributes of the church are. And when we speak of attributes, we are speaking of that which characterizes something. What that something is like. How can you recognize it? Tell me what it's like. Those are attributes. And the church has attributes. The Apostles' Creed is very specific in telling us what the church is like with those three very important words that it uses. I believe an holy Catholic church. And the catechism really adds another attribute, even though it doesn't mention it specifically, and that's the attribute of apostolicity. So that when we want to see the full reality of what the church looks like spiritually, we have these four words, these four attributes. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Well, what does it mean when we confess, I believe, an holy Catholic church? That word an is a reference to the unity of the church. And that means that the church is one. There is only one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are not many churches, even though there are many manifestations of the one body of Jesus Christ, many individual congregations, many denominations in this world. But when it comes down to it, there is only one church because there is only one head. And one head can only have one body, one single church that's found the world over. And the Heidelberg Catechism makes that explicit when it says that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to himself a church. Not many churches, but one single church chosen to everlasting life, one church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And this one church which exists in all the world is a church that existed in Old Testament times and now in New Testament times. The Catechism says from the beginning to the end of the world. Starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, going all the way throughout the years of the Old Testament and now some 2,000 years into the New Testament and even unto the end of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ gathers his one single church out of the whole human race. And this teaches us that the identity of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament Christians is the same. God does not have two different types of people. An Old Testament church who were the descendants of Abraham 
and then a New Testament church comprised of Gentiles who believe in Jesus. That's not the way it goes. Now, some in the church world do maintain that. The Baptists, for example, and they believe that God having these two distinct groups of people has two distinct purposes with each group of people with regard to the Old Testament Israelites, the Jews. It's the purpose of God to one day give them the physical land of Canaan. That's their inheritance. But for the church, the New Testament Christians, God has in store for them the beauties of heaven, and one day they will be whisked away to heavenly glory. But not according to the Heidelberg Catechism of the Apostles' Creed, I believe there's only one church that's gathered from the beginning to the end of the world. And Ephesians 5 teaches as much as well, teaches that there's only one church, Jesus Christ who loves his church, who's referred to as his bride. We have that in many different verses. For example, verse 25, husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. One church, Christ doesn't love many churches. Christ doesn't have many wives. Who did Jesus give his life for? Only New Testament Christians? No, but for his people even from the beginning of the world. And so there's one bride of the Lord Jesus Christ made up of all believers from the beginning to the end of the world. I believe and church. I believe that there is only one church that exists, that it has always existed, and that it is comprised of Old Testament saints and New Testament Christians alike. In the second place, the attribute of the church, I believe, and holy church. What does it mean that the church is holy? Well, that word holy means two things. It means separation from sin and devotion to God. Separation from sin and devotion to God. Let's take that first aspect. The church is called to be separated from sin. And that means that our calling as a church is not to make people feel good about themselves and to bring the message that you just do the best that you can or even to bring a message that as long as you are sincere and as long as you are genuine, then you can live whatever way you want to live. No, not at all, because the church is holy so that the church addresses sin and that the members consciously separate themselves from sin. And so the message of the church is not, you may do as you please, but the message is this, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is an holy church. And then the church separating herself from sin. Now there's that second aspect of holiness. The church devotes herself unto God. We have that in Ephesians 5 verse 26. 
where it says that Christ might sanctify and cleanse it, that is, his church, the members of his body, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. To be devoted unto God means that we've been washed by Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes us holy. And now it's our calling to live out that holiness and to live cleanly. After all, which one of you having, anticipating going to the supper table and you go to the sink and you wash your hands, you clean your hands, do we then go out and get our hands dirty all over again? We say, of course not, because we've been washed, we've been cleansed. And so also in our relationship to God, we devote ourselves to God and by the power of that same word and spirit that cleanses us, we go out and we live such holy and clean lives. The whole, this holiness of the church then teaches us also what ought to be our priorities in life. What are those things that we give our time and attention to? Frivolous things? Unholy things? If you and I were to carefully record every hour of every day, how do you and I spend our time? What's most important to us in life? Well, according to this Lord's Day and the Word of God, the most, most important thing is consecration to Christ as members of the church who have been washed by Christ. It becomes our desire to live in holiness and that becomes the motivation in all that we do, in all of the activities of the day. I am devoted to my Lord and my Savior, and I will praise him in all that I say and all that I do. And that means, beloved, that we'll properly arrange the priorities in life so that we put aside everything, no matter how legitimate it might be in itself, but insofar as it is distracting me from my relationship to God and pulling me away from my Savior, then I will put that thing aside all so that we might devote ourselves to our Savior who has washed us and cleansed us. I believe one church, I believe that this church is holy. And now another attribute of the church in the third place, I believe, and holy Catholic church. We believe that the church is Catholic. Now, it's a shame nowadays that the Roman Catholic church has all but claimed that word for themselves. That word Catholic means universal. The Roman Catholic church declares, we are the one church and we are found all over the world, and therefore we are the ones only and rightly who can claim that term Catholic Church. 
our issue with the Roman Catholic Church is not that they don't understand what the word Catholic means. They do understand what it means. But our issue is that they apply that word only to themselves. That word Catholic is a good word. But the Roman Catholic Church, contrary to its claim, they do not have the only claim on that word because that word Catholic means universal. It means composed of all different kinds of people from all different walks in life, from all kinds of nations and languages. It means God's people all over the world. The Catechism explains that when it says that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word out of the whole human race. It pleases God to gather his church out of the whole human race. And this is something that we know but we need to be reminded of it over and over again, that the church of Jesus Christ is not made up of Dutch Protestants, but the church is made up of those also from other places in the world, from Singapore and from the Philippines and from China and from South America and from Mexico and from many other places that the church is Catholic also means that God gathers his people from all different walks in life. Some are poor. Some are rich. Some have high-paying jobs. Some have low-paying jobs. Some have a specific social standing that others do not. But all kinds of different people. The church is Catholic. And this is a beautiful attribute of the church. And this is very instructive for us, even specifically for us as Dune Protestant Reformed Church and for us as a denomination that the church is Catholic, that God gathers his church from all nations of the world. That means that whenever a door is opened to us to proclaim the gospel, whether it's in this area of the world, whether it's over in the Philippines, or whether it's in a different foreign nation, but whenever God opens a door to us to proclaim the gospel, then we ought to go through that door and to the best of our ability bring that word of God so that it has free course. We don't know who all God's people are when we go to the mission field, but insofar as we know that the church is Catholic, then we can enter any mission field with the confidence that it just might please God to gather his people from this nation because the church of Jesus Christ is Catholic. I believe one church, I believe a holy church, a Catholic church, and now this fourth attribute of the church, I also believe an apostolic church. Now the Apostles' Creed doesn't use that word apostolic, 
And the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't use that word apostolic, although the Nicene Creed does. But even though the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't use that word, the Catechism does yet define what this attribute of the church is in this Lord's Day. The word apostolic means that the church is founded upon the doctrine of the apostles. That's simply what it means. And what is the doctrine of the apostles but the doctrine of Holy Scripture itself? And the Catechism describes this attribute of apostolicity when it says that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word. By his spirit and word. So that the power of the gathering of the church is the word of God. That word of God is effectual. So that when God's people hear that word, and hear the truth of Scripture, then they say, this is a very familiar voice, and I hear nothing but the voice of my Savior himself. The Catechism goes on to say that this church agrees in true faith. And th this word, in true faith, this refers to the object of our faith namely to the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what his work is to do. The church is founded upon Jesus Christ, who is the truth, as the apostles preached that truth of Jesus and laid that foundation, the church is apostolic. And this too is very instructive for us and this tells us that if we don't have the truth, then we are not the church. If we don't have the truth, then we have no foundation and we have no cornerstone. The truth is so critically important to us because Jesus Christ is the truth. And without Jesus Christ, we are not a church. And so we love that truth. We love the truth of Jesus Christ. And we love the truth of all of Scripture. And therefore, as an apostolic church, we have to be very wise in how we handle all of the truth of God's Word. Every church must not only fight and contend tooth and nail when that truth is at stake, but then there will also be other times when it's necessary when we would speak that word softly, in love, very gently and meekly. But that the church is apostolic, founded upon the truth, it means that we love that truth. We love the truth. And that means that when we do get into theological discussion and even arguments, and debate with others that we don't fight for the truth just so that we can say, oh, you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you there, and you over there, and I alone am right. 
that's not how we fight for the truth. That's not how we show our love for the truth. If there is ever that attitude in us, then God forgive us that pride. Having the truth is not a matter of being right over against everybody else, but having the truth is a matter of loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all of the Bible is about him. And that's our desire, to grow in the truth, that we might grow in our love and knowledge of our Lord and our Savior. We are an apostolic church, and God grant that we continue to stand upon that truth. And those are the attributes of the church. The church is one. The church is holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And this church is beautiful. The Bible describes the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. He's married to her. And that means that the church is the object of Christ's love. And so precious is the church to our Lord and Savior that he would show his love by giving his very life for the church that he loves. And that love of Jesus for the church is set forth in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, where we have all of this instruction about husbands and wives and their relationship one to another in the married state. But it's all given as a reflection, first of all, of the love of Jesus to his church and of the submission of the church to her bridegroom. At the very end of this chapter in verse 32, Paul says this is a great mystery. All of this leaving father and mother and then a man and a woman coming together in holy marriage and becoming one flesh that's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And it's interesting that even, yes, here in Ephesians 5, there's all kinds of applications to our marriages, but Ephesians 5 isn't mainly about our relationships as husbands and wives, but it's mainly a passage about Jesus' marriage, that he is intimately united to his church. He's one flesh with the members of his body. He's joined us to himself so that we enjoy his life. Verse 25, you also have the instruction to the husbands Husbands, love your wives. Why ought you husbands to love your wives? Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus Christ, he loves his church, the members of his body. And that is a truth that is so dear to us, that is so precious, that we are a holy Catholic apostolic church and that we are beautiful 
and that we are the objects of the love of our Savior and loved so much that he gave his life for us. The Catechism also underscores the love of Jesus Christ for his church. What do you believe about the church? The first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism is not referring to the church, first of all, in answer to the question, but it refers to the work of Christ. What do you believe about the church? The answer is, I, I believe something about Jesus, that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to himself out of the whole human race, the church chosen to everlasting life. So that this is what I believe about the church, that Christ in his great love for the church gathers her, defends her from all her enemies, and preserves her. Christ performs all these works because he loves his church. And such is his love for the church that he gathers, defends, and preserves her uh, to himself, the catechism says, to himself, which means that the Lord Jesus Christ has a vital interest in his church. He loves his church, and he wants to be near to the members of his body. And so he gathers her in, draws her by his own, by his own word and by his own spirit, even as a husband draws his wife close unto him, so also the Lord Jesus Christ loves his church. And that's precious for us to know that we are the objects of the love of Jesus Christ, our faithful shepherd. What are the problems you're going through? What are the struggles that you might have in your life at this moment? Look to your Lord who loves you and who shows that love gathering you, defending you, and preserving you. This love of Christ for his bride, the church, is an eternal love. It's an eternal love, which means that it's not the case that Jesus Christ develops in his love for the church so that the members of the church grow up and they begin to show themselves all on their own. They begin to show themselves lovable and desirable. And then Jesus says, well, I think those people are pretty good. I think that they just might be worthy objects of my love. And now I'm going to bestow my love on them. And now I choose to love them. No, that's not how the love of Jesus Christ comes to us, but rather the love of Jesus Christ for his church is an eternal love. And Lord's Day 21 refers to that when it says the Son of God gathers a church chosen to everlasting life. And we recognize that to be a reference to the doctrine of election. Election, which is God's decree from all eternity concerning who are those who would receive salvation in Jesus Christ. 
But now what compelled God to elect some over against others? And the Word of God answers that question a few chapters earlier in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And then you take those last two words of Ephesians 1 verse 4 and you read those in connection with the beginning of verse 5. In love, having predestinated us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. In love having predestinated us. Well, then what's the reason for that love of God for us? And that's answered at the end of Ephesians 1 verse 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. That God loves his church with an eternal love. And that is of extreme comfort for you and for me because we have so many enemies, so many temptations, so many attempts to pull away our faith, to rob us of our comfort. Our sins rise up against us day after day, and we feel ourselves, and we are, we are so weak, we are so weary, but then we remember the Son of God, powerful and almighty, gathers, defends, and preserves me, and he's chosen me to everlasting life. And that love which was eternal will not fail me now in time, but that love will continue into all eternity so that having been chosen by God, I cannot be snatched out of his hand. And when we meditate on the love of God for me, we cannot help but know that God is faithful and unchangeable, and this is my preservation. And therefore, I cannot be snatched out of his hand. The child of God, knowing that truth, will not think, well, that means that I can live as wickedly as I want because, after all, I know I'm going to heaven. Of course not but the child of God who knows that eternal love of God will live in gratitude and humility to God. For the Lord Jesus Christ loves his church and makes her beautiful and has always loved his church in that eternal electing love. And who are the members of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church? Well, the answer is, well, the elect, of course. Not everybody is the object of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but only his sheep, only his elect. They are the members of the body of Jesus Christ. But now we can say something in this final point about the, the members of the body of Christ. And what's true of them is that they are not dead members. Not true of you or me. We're not dead members in the body of Jesus Christ, but we are 
living members, alive with the life of Jesus Christ himself. The Catechism says that, the end of answer 55, and that I am and forever shall remain, not truth of preservation, it's there as well, that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. So that you and I are living members in the body of Jesus Christ, the church. Now it's true that we are members of the universal church of Jesus Christ, but now membership in the universal church means that it's my privilege and my joy to express my membership in that universal church by joining myself to the local church institute where I can be a member and worship with God's people regularly and partake of the sacraments. Membership in the church is part of the confession we make then when we say, I am a living member even here in this church. And that living membership is expressed then as the communion of the saints. And that's why question 55 goes on, what do you understand by the communion of the saints? The communion of the saints is something also a very beautiful truth about God's people. We love to hear about the communion of the saints. The communion of saints, though, is not, first of all, what we might usually think of. Usually when we hear communion of the saints, we envision ourselves in the back of church, speaking with one another, encouraging one another. Usually when we think about the communion of the saints, we think about having people over to our homes or us going over to the homes of somebody else and when we can have a good time of fellowship and when we can speak about spiritual matters. Now, that, that's true. That is the communion of the saints, but that's not first and foremost what the communion of the saints is all about. The catechism asks, what do you understand by the communion of the saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. So that the communion of saints is, first of all, that I commune with Jesus Christ and that I am a partaker of all his riches and of all of his gifts. And then we ask, well, how do we do that? Well, we do that by hearing his word and the Holy Spirit applying that word to our hearts and the Holy Spirit bestowing all of those blessings and all of those riches of Jesus Christ. And that means that the divine worship services of the church really is the highest expression of the communion of the saints this side of the grave. And that's important for us because if you and I will experience communion with Christ through his word, 
then one of the most basic things that I must do is to come to church because this is where God gathers his people. This is where God meets his people. This is where communion with God begins. Now, it doesn't end here. It goes on in my daily life, but I won't have communion with God in my daily life if I don't come to church because it's here that it pleases Christ to fellowship with his bride. Here he gives us his word. And so, beloved, the admonition is come to church. You want to experience the communion of the saints? The communion of the saints is what's going on right now in this divine worship services that our hearts are knit together having been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and now we worship God together as his bride here in Doom PRC to the glory of his name. This is the communion of the saints worshiping our Lord and our Savior as families in generations. That is what the communion of the saints is first and foremost. But then secondly, insofar as we experience fellowship with God, then we will also enjoy that fellowship with one another. And that's what the catechism goes on to say. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty, readily and cheerfully, to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. Now, this too is the communion of the saints. Perhaps that communion that we would usually and normally think of. The God has given unto us all gifts. We may not say, I don't have any gifts, and therefore I'm of no use to anybody else, and it's impossible for me to help others. The catechism doesn't say, if you have gifts, then consider employing them for the benefit of the neighbor, but it implies that we all have gifts. And now the admonition is use them. Use those gifts for the well-being and for the welfare of others. Whatever the gift is that God gives you, you must use it, not for yourself, not for selfish purposes, but you use it for the other members, whether it be the gift of time, the gift of being industrious, the gift of being a handyman, the gift of being uh, a wife, a mother in the home who can help others by, by making a meal, the gift of bringing a good fit word to somebody else in the congregation to help them, the gift of being able not to speak a word to give somebody else a hug who needs that in the body of Jesus Christ. Whatever the gift it might be, God has given it to you for the sake of the other members. And then this is the calling, this is our calling in the communion of the saints is that I use that gift for you. And you use that gift for others, for their help and for their encouragement. 
And what a joy that is. What a life is ours to see fellow members, to speak to others, to be able to help them and to love them, enjoying the communion of the saints. This is part and parcel, the, the life and the vibrancy of a church. Can you imagine a church? Can you imagine a church that is so lifeless where the people really didn't care one for another? A church where the members do not pray one for another, where nobody would greet us and speak to us? Can you imagine what fellowship and communion of the saints would be like if the moment after church is done with and we walk through those doors, everybody makes a mad dash to their cars and leaves? And the next time we see each other would be the next time that we gather for worship service and the same thing happens again? There's no communion there. There's no fellowship there. Hardly a love one for another. But when we see each other as fellow members of the body of Christ that we've been waiting to see because we love one another, because we all enjoy the common salvation that Jesus Christ has given to us, and therefore we are knit one to another. We have that in common. Therefore, we love one another and will seek to use everything that God has given me in the service of the Lord. Maybe somebody would say, well, that's all nice, but I'm really, really fine on my own. Kind of a private person anyways. I'd rather just be left alone. kind of a selfish way to think, very greedy actually, but rather let's be of this mind. Do I have something to give to the other members? What, whether I need it or not isn't the question. It's whether the other members can even profit at all, even in a very small way, by the gift that God has given unto me. And by my fellowship with them, and then the answer is, well, then I better have communion with them and use my gifts on their behalf. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that we are and forever shall remain a living member thereof. God grant that we may live joyfully, Experiencing communion with him in the church and experiencing communion one with another. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word to us this morning. We thank thee for the church which our Lord Jesus loves whom he loves so much that he gave his life for the church and has cleansed us by his spirit and word. Continue, Heavenly Father, now so to draw us unto thyself that we may enjoy living membership in the body of Jesus Christ. 
forgive our sins, bless us in thy mercy. In Jesus' name we pray.